Hello everyone, grab some snacks, grab a drink, and please remember not to open your window no matter what you see or may hear outside of the vehicle. And with that, please buckle up and let's get a move on to exit 666. This is another story by E.F. Benson and the Dead Spake. There is not all, in all London, a quieter spot or one, apparently, more withdrawn from the heat and bustle of life than Newsome Terrace. It is a cul-de-sac, for at the upper end of the roadway between its two lines of square, compact little residences is brought to an end by a high brick wall. While at the lower end, the only access to it is through Newsom Square, and that small, discreet oblong of Georgian houses, a relic of time when Kingston was a suburban village, sundered from the metropolis by a stretch of pastures stretching to the river, both square and terraced are most inconveniently situated for those whose ideal environment includes a rank of taxis immediately outside their door, a spate of buses roaring down the street, and a procession of underground trains accessible by a station a few yards away. Shaking and rattling the cutlery and silver on their dining room tables. In consequence, Newsome Terrace had come two years ago to be inhibited by leisurely and retired folk, or by those who wished to pursue their work in quiet and tranquility. Children with hoops and scooters are a phenomenon rarely encountered in the terrace, and dogs are equally uncommon. In front of each of the couple dozen houses of which the terrace is composed lies a little square of railinged garden in which you may often see middle-aged or elderly mistresses of the residency, portically unemployed. By five o'clock of a winter's evening, the pavements will generally be empty of all the passengers except the policeman, who have felted step at intervals throughout the night, peers with his bullseye into the small front gardens, and never finds anything more suspicious there than an early oculus or an acnate. For the time, it is dark, and inhabitants of the terrace have got themselves home. Where being drawn curtains and bolted shutters, they will pass a domestic and uninterrupted evening. No funeral, up to the time I speak of, had I ever seen the terrace leave. No marriage party had stewed its pavements with confetti, and preemptibles were unknown. To it, its inhabitants seemed to be quietly mellowing like bottles of sound wine. No doubt, there were stored within them was the sunshine and summer of youthful and past. And now, dozing in a cool place, they waited for the turn of the key in the cellar door and the entry of one who would draw them forth and see what they were worth. Yet, after which of time I shall now speak, I have never passed down its pavement without wondering whether each house so seemingly tranquil is not like some dynamo, softly and smoothly bringing into the vast and terrible forces such as those I once saw at work and in the last house at the upper end of the terrace, the quietest, you would have said, of all the row, had you observed it, with continuous scrutiny for all the length of a summer's day. It is quite possible that you might have only seen the issue from it, in the morning, an elderly lady, whom, 
you would have rightly conjectured to be the housekeeper, with her basket for marketing on her arm, who returned an hour later. Except for her, the entire day might pass without there being either ingress or egress from the door. Occasionally, a middle-aged man, lean and wiry, came swiftly down the pavement, but his exit was by no means a daily occurrence, and indeed, when he did emerge, he broke the almost universal usage of the terrace, for his appearances took place, where such they were, between nine and ten in the evening. At that hour, sometimes he would come around to my house, in Newsome Square, to see if it was at home and inclined for a talk a little later on. For the sake of air and exercise, he would then have an hour's tramp through the lit and noisy streets and return about ten, still pale and unflushed. One, for one of those talks which grew to have an absorbing fascination for me, more rarely through the telephone, I proposed that I should drop in on him. This I did not often do, since I found that if he did not come out himself, it implied he was busy with some investigation. And though he made me welcome, I could easily see that he burned for my departure so that he might get busy with his batteries and pieces of tissue. Hot in the track of discoveries that never yet had presented themselves to the mind of man as coming within the horizon of possibility. My last sentence may have led the reader to guess that I am indeed speaking of none other than the recluse and mis with whose death a hundred half-hewn avenues in the dark forest from which life comes must wait completion till another pioneer as bold as he takes up the axe which person none but himself has been able to wield. Probably there was never a man to whom humanity owed more, and of whom humanity knew less. He seemed utterly independent of the race to whom, though indeed with no service of love, he devoted himself. For years he lived aloof and apart in this house at the end of the terrace. Men and women were to him like fossils to a geologist, things to be tapped and hammered and dissected and studied with a view not only to the reconstruction of past ages, but to construction in the future. It is known, for instance, that he made an artificial being formed of tissue, still living, of animals lately killed, with the brain of an ape and the heart of a bullock, and a sheep's thyroid, and so forth. Of that I can give no first-hand account, Horton, it is true, told me something about it, and in his will, and in his will directed that certain memoranda on the subject should on his death be sent to me. But on the bulky envelope there is the direction not to be opened till January 1925. He spoke with some reserve, and, so I think, with slight, with slight horror at the strange things that happened on the completion of this creature. It evidently made him uncomfortable to talk about it, and for that reason I fancy him put what was then a rather remote date to the day when his record should reach my eye. Finally, in these preliminaries, the last five years before the war, he had scarcely entered, for the sake of companionship, any house other than his own and mine, ours, was a friendship, dating from school days, which he had never suffered to drop entirely. But I doubt if in those years he spoke, except on matters of business, to half a dozen people. He had already retired from surgical practice, in which his skill was unapproached and most completely now did he avoid the slightest intercourse with his colleagues.
whom he regarded as ignorant pedants, without courage or rudiments of knowledge. Now and then he would write in a pokey-making little monograph, which he flung to them like a bone to a starving dog, but for the most part utterly absorbed in his own investigations. He left them to grope along unaided. He frankly told me that he enjoyed talking to me about such subjects, since I was utterly unacquainted with them. It clarified his mind to be obligated to put his theories and guesses and confirmations with such simplicity that anyone could understand them. I well remember him coming to see me on the evening of the 4th of August, 1914. So the war has about broken out. So the war has broken out, he said, and the streets are impassable with excited crowds. Odd, isn't it? Such as if us already was not a far more murderous battlefield than which can be conceived between warring nations. How's that? said I. Let me try to put it plainly. Though it isn't that I want to talk about, your blood is one eternal battlefield. It is full of armies eternally marching and counter-marching. As long as the armies friendly to you are in a superior position, you remain in good health. If a detachment of microbes that, if suffered to establish themselves, would give you a cold in the head, entrench themselves in your mucous membrane, the commander-in-chief sends a regiment down and drives them out. He doesn't give his orders from your brain, mind you. Those aren't his headquarters. For your brain knows nothing about the landing of an enemy till they have made their good position and given you a cold. He paused a moment. There isn't one headquarters inside you, he said. There are many. For instance, I killed a frog this morning. At least most people would say I killed it, but had I killed it, though its head lay in one place and its severed body in another? Not a bit. I had only killed a piece of it, for I opened the body up afterwards and took out the heart, which I put in a sterilized chamber of suitable temperature so that I wouldn't get cold or be infected by any microbe. That was about twelve o'clock today, and when I came out just now, the heart was still beating. It was alive, in fact. That's full of suggestions, you know. Come and see it. The terrace had been stirred into volcanic activity by the news of the war. The vendor of some late edition had penetrated into quietude, and there was half a dozen parlor maids fluttering about like black and white moths. But once inside Horton's door, isolation as of an arctic night seemed to close around me. He had forgotten his latchkey, but his housekeeper then newly came to him, who became so regular and familiar a figure in the terrace, must have heard his step. For before he rang the bell, she had opened the door, and stood with his forgotten latchkey in her arm. Thanks, Mrs. Gabriel, said he, and without a sound, the door shut behind us. Both her name and face, as reproduced in some illustrated daily paper, seemed familiar, rather terribly familiar. But before I had time to grope the association, Horton supplied it, tried for the murder of her husband six months ago he said. Odd case, the point is that she is the one and perfect housekeeper. I once had four servants, and everything was all mucky, as we used to say at school. Now I live in amazing comfort and property with one. She does everything. She is a cook, valet, housemaid, butler, and won't have anyone to help her. 
no doubt she killed her husband, but she planned it so well that she could not be convicted. She told me quite frankly who she was when I engaged her. Of course, I remembered the whole trial vividly now. Her husband, a morose, quarrelsome fellow, tipsy as often as sober, had, according to defense, cut his own throat while shaving. According to the prosecution, she had done that for him. There was a usual discrepancy of evidence as to whether the wound could have been self-inflicted, and the prosecution tried to prove that the face had been lathered after his throat had been cut. So singular of an exhibition of forethought and nerve had hurt rather than helped the case, and after prolonged deliberation on the part of the jury, she had been acquitted. Yet, not less singular was Horton's selection of probable murderesses, however efficient as housekeeper. He anticipated this reflection. Apart from the wonderful comfort of having a perfectly appointed and absolutely silent house, he said, I regard Mrs. Gabriel as sort of insurance against my being murdered. If you had been tried for your life, you would take very special care not to find yourself in suspicious proximity to a murdered body again. No more deaths in your house if you could help it. Come through to my laboratory and look at my little instances of life after death. Certainly, it was amazing to see that little piece of tissue still pulsating with that must be called life. It contracted and expanded faintly, indeed, but perceptibly. Though, for nine hours now, it had been severed through the rest of the organization all by itself and went on living. And if the heart could go on living with nothing, you would say, to feed and stimulate its energy, there must also, so reason Horton, reside in all other vital organs of the body, other independent focuses of life. Of course a severed organ like that, he said, will run down quicker than if it had the cooperation of the others, and presently I shall apply a gentle electric stimulus to it. If I can keep that glass bowl under which it beats at the temperature of a frog's body in sterilized air, I don't see why it should go not living. Food, of course. There's the question of feeding it. Do you see what that opens up in the way of a surgery? I mean, a shop with glass cases containing healthy organs taken from the dead? Say a man dies of pneumonia. He should, as soon as ever the breath is out of his body, be dissected. And though they would, of course, destroy his lungs, as they will be full of pneumonia, his liver and digestive organs are probably healthy. Take them out. Keep them in a sterilized atmosphere with a temperature at 98.4 and sell the liver, let us say, to another poor devil who has cancer there. Fit him with a new healthy liver, eh? and insert the brain of someone who has died of heart disease into the skull of a congenital idiot, I asked. Yes, perhaps, but the brain's tiresomely complicated, and its connections that the joining up of nerves, you know. Surgery will have to learn a lot before it fits new brains in. And the brain has got such a lot of functions. All thinking, all inventing seem to belong to it. Though, as you see, the heart can get on quite well without it. But there are other functions of the brain I want to study first. I've been trying some experiments already. He made some little readjustments to the flame of the spirit lamp, which kept at the right temperature the water that surrounded the sterilized receptacle in which the frog's heart was beating. 
Start with the more simple and mechanical uses of the brain, he said. Primarily, it is a sort of record office, a diary. Say that I wrap your knuckles with that ruler. What happens? The nerves. They send a message to the brain, of course, saying, How can I put it? How can I put it most simply? Saying, Someone is hurting me. And the eye sends another saying, I perceive a ruler hitting my knuckles. And the ear sends another saying, I hear the rap of it. But leaving all that alone, what else happens? Why, the brain records it. It makes a note of your knuckles having been hit. He had been moving about the room as he spoke, taking off his coat and waistcoat and putting on their place a black, thin dressing gown. And by now, he was seated in his favorite attitude cross-legged on the hearthrug, looking like some magician or perhaps a fridity with the magician of black arts had caused to appear. He was thinking intently now, passing through his fingers, his string of amber beads, and talking more to himself than to me. And how does it make that note? He went on. Why, in the manner of which phonograph records are made, there are millions of minutes, dots, depressions, pockmarks on your brain, which currently record what you remember, what you have enjoyed or disliked or done or said. The surface of the brain, anyhow, is large enough to furnish writing paper for the record of all of these things, of all of your memories. If the impressions of an experience has not been accurate, the dot is not sharply impressed, and the record fades. In other words, you come to forget it. But if it has been vividly impressed, the record is never obligated. Mrs. Gabriel, for instance, won't lose the impression of how she lathered her husband's face after she had cut his throat. That's to say, if she did it. Now, do you see what I'm driving at? Of course you do. There is a stored within a man's head the complete record of all memorable things he has done and said. There are all his thoughts there, on all of his speeches, and most well-marked of all, his habitual thoughts, and the things he has often said for habit. There is a reason to believe, where is a sort of rut in the brain, so that the life principle, whatever it is, as it gropes and steals about the brain, it continually stumbles into it. There's your record, your gramophone plate already. What we want, and what I'm trying to arrive at, is a needle which, as it traces its minutes way over these dots, will come across words or sentences which the dead have uttered, and we will reproduce them. My word, what judgment books, what a resurrection. Here, in this withdrawn situation, no remotest echo of the excitement which was seething through the streets penetrated. Through the open window there came in only the tide of the midnight silence. But from somewhere closer at hand, through the wall, surely, of the laboratory, there came a low, somewhat persistent murmur. Perhaps her needle, an unhappily not yet invented, as it passed over the record of speech in the brain, might produce even facial expressions, he said. Enjoyment of horror might even pass over dead features. There might be gestures and movements, even as the words were reproduced in our gramophobe of the dead. Some people, when they want to think intensely, walk about. Some, there's an instance of it audible now, talk to themselves out loud. He held up his finger for silence. Yes, that's Mrs. Gabriel, he 
he said. She talks to herself by the hour together. She's always done that, she tells me. I wouldn't wonder if she has plenty to talk about. It was that night when, first of all, the notion of intense activity going on below the placid house fronts of the terrace occurred to me. None looked more quiet than this, and yet there was seething here a volcanic activity and intensity of living, both in the man who sat across the legged on the floor and behind the voice, just audible through the partition wall. But I thought of that no more, for Horton began speaking of the brain gramophone again, where it possible to trace those influential dots and pockmarks in the brain by some needle explicity fine it might follow by the aid of some such controversies as translated the pockmarks on a gramophone record into sound some audible rendering of speech might be recovered from the brain of a dead man it was necessary so he pointed out to me that this strange gramophone record should be new it must be that of one lately dead for corruption and decay would soon obliterate these influential markings. He was not of opinion that unspoken thought could be thus recovered. The utmost he hoped for from his pioneering work was to be able to recapture actual speech, especially when such speech had habitually dwelt on one subject, and thus had worn a rut on that part of the brain known as the speech center. Let me get, for instance, he said, the brain of a railway porter, newly dead, who has been accustomed for years to call out the name of a station, and I do not despair of hearing his voice through my gramophone trumpet, or again, given that Mrs. Gabriel, in all of her interminable conversations with herself, talks about one subject, I might, in similar circumstances, recapture what she had been constantly saying. Of course, my instrument must be of a power and delicacy still unknown, one of which the needle can trace the minute irregularities of surface, and of which the trumpet must be of immense magnifying power, able to translate the smallest whisper into a shout. But just as microscope will show you the details of an object invisible to the eye, so there are instruments which act in the same way on sound, here, for instance, is one of a remarkable magnifying power. Try it, if you like. He took me over to a table on which was standing an electric connected battery with a round steel globe out of the side which sprang a gramophone trumpet of curious construction. He adjusted the battery and directed me to click my fingers quite gently opposite, on a parture in the globe and the noise, utterly scarcely audible, resounded through the room like a thunderclap. Something that sort might permit us to hear the record on a brain, he said. After this night, my visits to Horton became far more common than they had ever been. Having once admitted me into the region of his strange explorations, he seemed to welcome me there. Partially, as he had said, it clarified his own thoughts to put it into simple language. Partially, as he subconsciously admitted, he was beginning to penetrate into such lonely fields of knowledge by paths so utterly unturned that even he, the most aloof and independent of mankind, wanted some human presence to near him. Despite this utter indifference to the issue of the war for, in his regard, issues far more crucial, demanded on his brain and the services, naturally, were welcome. For none brought knowledge or skill like his to such work. Occupied all day, he performed miracles of healing with bold and dexterous excursions 
which none he would have dared to attempt. He would operate, often successfully, for lessons that seemed certainly fatal, and all the time he was learning. He refused to accept any salary. Despite his utter indefiance of the issue of the war, for, in his regard, issues far more crucial demanded his energies, he offered himself as surgeon to London Hospital for operations on a brain, and his services naturally were welcomed. For none brought knowledge or skill like his to such work. Occupied all day, he performed miracles of healing with bold and dexterous incisions, which none but he would have dared to attempt. He would operate, often successfully, for lesions that seemed certainly fatal, and all the time he was learning. He refused to accept any salary. He only asked, in cases where he had removed pieces of brain matter, to take these away in order by further examination and, dis and dissection to add to the knowledge and manipulative skill which he devoted to the wounded. He wrapped these morsels in sterilized lint and took them back to the terrace in a box, electrically heated to maintain the normal temperature of a man's blood. His fragment might then, so he reasoned, keep some sort of independent life of its own, even as the severed heart of a frog had continued to beat for hours without connection with the rest of the body. Then, for half the night, he would continue to work on these sundered pieces of tissue, scarcely dead, which his operations during the day had given him. Simultaneously, he was busy over the needle that must be of such infinite delicacy. One evening, fatigued, after a long day's work, I had just heard with a certain tremor of uneasy anticipation the whistles of warning which herald an air raid when my telephone bell rang. My servants, according to custom, had already been taken themselves to the cellar, and I went to see what the summons was. Determined in any case not to go into the streets, I recognized Horton's voice. I want you at once, he said. But the warning whistles have gone, said I, and I don't like showers of shrapnel. Oh, never mind that, said he. You must come. I'm so excited that I distrust the evidence of my own ears. I want a witness. Just, just come. He did not pause for my reply, for I heard the click of the receiver going back into its place. Clearly, he assumed that I was coming, and that I suppose had the effect of suggestion in my mind. I told myself that I would not go, but in a couple of minutes, his certainty that I was coming, coupled with the prospect of being interested in something else than air raids, made me fidget in my chair and eventually go to the street door and look out. The moon was brilliantly bright and square, quite empty, and far away the coppings of a very distant guns. Next moment, almost against my will, I was running down the deserted pavements of Newsom Terrace. My ring at his bell was answered by Horton, before Miss Gabriel could come to the door, and he positively dragged me in. I shan't tell you a word of what I am doing, he said. I want you to tell me what you hear. Come into the laboratory. The remote guns were silent again as I sat myself, as directed, in a chair close to the Gramford trumpet, but suddenly through the wall I heard the familiar mutter of Mrs. Gabriel's voice. Horton, already busy with the battery, sprang to his feet. That won't do, he said. I want absolute silence. He went out of the room, and I heard him calling to her. While he was gone, I observed more closely what was on the table. Battery, round steel globe, and gramophone trumpet were there. 
and some sort of needle on a spiral steel spring linked up with the battery in a glass vessel in which I had seen the frog's heart beat, and it now there lay a fragment of gray matter. Horton came back in a minute or two and stood in the middle of the room listening. That's better, he said. Now I want you to listen at the mouth of the trumpet. I'll answer any questions afterwards. With my ear turned to the trumpet, I could see nothing of what he was doing. I listened still, and the silence became rustling in my ears. Then, suddenly, that rustling ceased, for it was overscored by the whisper, which undoubtedly came from the aperture on which my aerial attention was fixed. It was no more than the faintest murmur, and, though no words were audible, it had the timbre of a human voice. Well, do you hear anything? asked Horton. Yes, something very faint, scarcely audible. Describe it, said he. Somebody whispering. I'll try a fresh place, said he. The silence descending again, the mutter of a distant gun was still mute, and some slight creaking from my shirt front as I breathed alone broke it, and then the whispering from the gramophone trumpet began again, this time much louder than it had been before. It was as if the speaker, still whispering, had advanced a dozen yards, but still blurred and indistinct. More unmistakable, too, was it that the whisper was that of a human voice, and every now and then, whether frantically or not, I caught a word or two. For a moment it was silent altogether, and then, with a sudden inkling of what I was listening to, I heard something begin to sing. Though the words were still inaudible, there was melody, and tune was temporary. From that convulsive-shaped trumpet, there came two bars of it. And what do you hear now? cried Horton, with a crack of exhilaration through his voice. Singing! Singing! That's the tune they all sang. Fine music, that from a dead man. Encore, you say? Yes! Wait a second, he'll sing it again for you. Confound it. I cannot get on the place. I've got it. Listen again. Surely, that was the strangest manner of song ever yet heard on the earth. This melody from the brain of the dead, horror and fascination strove with me, and I suppose for the first moment prevailed with a shudder. And I jumped up. Stop it, I said. It's terrible. His face, thin and eager, gleamed to the strong ray of lamp which he had placed close to him. His hand was on the metal rod from the dependent spiral spring, and the needle which just rested on that fragment of gray stuff which I had seen in the glass vessel. Yes, I'm going to stop it now he said, or the germs will be getting at my gramophone record, or the record will get cold. See, I spray it with carter vapor. I put it back into a nice warm bed. It will seem to us again, but terrible. What do you mean by terrible? Indeed, when he asked that, I scarcely knew myself what I meant. I had been a witness to a new marvel of science, as wonderful perhaps as any that had ever astounded the beholder. And my nerves, these childish whimpers, had cried out at the darkness and the profundity, but the horror diminished, the fascination increased, as he quite shortly told me the history of this phenomenon. He had attended that day and operated upon a young soldier, in whose brain was embedded by a piece of shrapnel. The boy was in extremis, but Horton had hoped for the possibility of saving him. To extract the shrapnel was only the chance, and this involved the cutting away of a piece of brain known as a speech center and taking from the boy and taking from it was embedded there and the hope was not realized 
and two hours later, the boy died. It was to the fragment of brain that, when Horton returned home, he had applied the needle of his gramophone and obtained the faint whisperings which had caused him to ring me up, so that he might have a witness of this wonder, a witness I had been, not to these whisperings alone, but to the fragment of singing. And this is but the first step on the new road, said he. Who knows where it might lead, or to what new temple of knowledge it may not be the avenue? Well, it is late. I shall do no more tonight. What about the raid, by the way? To my amazement, I saw what the time was verging on midnight. Two hours had elapsed since he let me in the door. They had passed like a couple of minutes, which, next morning, some neighbors spoke to the prolonged firing that had gone on, of which I had been wholly unconscious. Week after week, Horton worked on the new road of research, perfecting the, perfecting the sensitiveness and subtle of the needle, and by vastly increasing the power of his batteries, enlarging the magnifying power of his trumpet, many and many evenings during the next year did I listen to voices that were dumb and deaf, and the sounds which had been blurred and unintelligibly mutterings in the earlier experiments. Developed, as the delicacy of his mechanical devices increased, into coherence and in clear articulation, it was no longer necessary to impose silence on Mrs. Gabriel when the gramophone was at work, for now the voice we listened to had risen to the pitch of an ordinary human utterance. While, as for the faintness and individuality of these records, striking testimony was given more and once by some living friend of the dead who, without knowing what he was about to hear, recognized the tones of the speaker. More than once, also, Mrs. Gabriel bringing in symphonies and whiskey provided us with three glasses, for she had heard, so she told us, three different voices in talk. But for the present, no fresh phenomenon occurred. Horton was but perfecting the mechanism of his previous discovery, and, rather grudging the time, was scribbling at a monograph, which presently he would toss to his colleagues concerning the results he had already obtained. And then even while Horton was on the threshold of new wonders which he had already foreseen and spoken to as theoretically possible, there came an evening of marvel and swift catastrophe. I had dined with him that day, Mrs. Gabriel deftly serving the meal that she had so daintily prepared, and towards the end, she was cleaning the table of our dessert, she stumbled, I suppose on loose edge of the carpet, quickly recovering herself, but instantly Horton checked on some half-finished sentence and turned to her. "'You're all right, Mrs. Gabriel?' he asked quickly. "'Yes, sir, thank you,' she said, and went on with her serving. "'As I was saying,' began Horton again, but his attention clearly wandered, and without concluding his narrative, he relapsed into silence, till Mrs. Gabriel had given us our coffee and left the room. "'I'm sadly afraid my domestic felicity may be disturbed.' He said, Mrs. Gabriel had an epileptic fit yesterday, and she confessed when she recovered that she had been subject to them as a child, and since then had occasionally experienced them. Dangerous, then? I asked. In themselves, not in the least, said he. If she was sitting in the chair or lying on the bed when one occurred, there would be nothing to trouble about. But if one occurred while she was cooking my dinner, or beginning to come downstairs, she might fall into the fire or tumble down the whole flight. We'll hope no such deplorable calamity will happen. Now, if you've finished with your coffee, let us go into the laboratory. Not that I've got anything very interesting in the way of new records, 
but I've introduced a second battery with a very strong introduction coil into my apparatus. And I find that if I think it up with my record, given that the record is a, a fresh one, it will stimulate a certain nerve center. It's odd, isn't it, that the same forces which so encourage the dead to live would certainly encourage the living to die. If a man receives the full current, one has to be careful in handling it. Yes, and what then, you ask? The night was very hot, and he threw the windows wide before he settled himself cross-legged on the floor. I'll answer your question for you, he said. Though, I believe we talked of it before, supposing I had not a fragment of brain tissue only, but a whole head, let us say, or best of all, a complete corpse, I think I could expect to produce more than mere speech through the gramophone. The dead lips themselves perhaps might utter, God, what's that? From close outside, at the bottom of the stairs, leading from the dining room, which had just quitted to the laboratory, where we now sat, there came a crash of glass, followed by the fall as of something heavy, which bumped from step to step, and was finally flung on the threshold against the door, with a sound as of knuckles rapping at it, and demanding admittance. Horton sprang up and threw the door open, and there lay, half inside the room and half on the landing outside, the body of Mrs. Gabriel. Round her were splinters of broken bottles and glasses, and from a cut in her forehead, as she lay, ghastly with face upturned and blood trickling into her thick gray hair. Horton was on his knees beside her, dabbing his handkerchief on her forehead. Ah, uh, that's not serious, he said. That's neither vein nor artery cut. I'll just bind that up first. He tore his handkerchief into strips, which he tied together, and made a dexterous bandage covering the lower part of her forehead, and leaving her eyes unobscured, they stirred with a fixed meaningless steadiness, and he scrutinized them closely. But there's worse yet, he said. There's been some severe blow on the head. Help me carry her into the laboratory. Get round to her feet and lift underneath the knees where I am now. There, now put your arm right under her and carry her. Her head swung limply back as he lifted her shoulders, and he propped it up against his knees, where it mutely nodded and bowed as his legs moved, as if in silent ascendance to what we were doing, and the mouth, at an extremity, of which had gathered a little lather, lolloped open. He still supported her shoulders as I fetched a cushion on which to lay her head, and presently she was lying close to the low table on which, stirred, on which stood the gramophobe of the dead. Then, with the light, deft fingers, he pressed his hands over her skull, pausing as he came to the spot just above and beyond her right ear. Twice and again his fingers gripped and lightly pressed, while with shut eyes and concentrated attention, he interpreted what his trained touch revealed. Her skull was broken to fragments just here, he said. In the middle, there's a piece completely severed from the rest, and the edges of the cracked pieces must be pressing on her brain. Her right arm was lying palm upwards on the floor, and with one hand, he felt her wrist with her fingertips. Her right hand, her right arm was lying palm upwards on the floor, and with one hand, he left her wrist with the fingertips. Not a sign of a pulse, he said. She is dead in the ordinary sense of the word, but life persists in an extraordinary manner. You may remember she cannot be wholly dead. No one is wholly dead in a moment. 
unless every organ is blown to bits. But she soon will be dead if we don't relieve the pressure on the brain. That's the first thing to be done. While I'm busy at that, shut the window, will you? And make up the fire in this sort of case, the vital heat, whatever that is, leaves the body very quickly. Make the room as hot as you can. Fetch an oil stove and turn on the electric radiator and stroke up a roaring fire. The hotter the room is, the more slowly will the heat of the life leave her. Already, he had opened his cabinet of surgical instruments and taken out two of the drawers full of bright steel, which he laid on the floor beside her. I heard the grating chink of scissors scavenging her long gray hair, and as I busied myself with laying and lighting the fire in the hearth and kindling the oil stove, which I found by Horton's directions in the pantry, I saw that his lancet was busy on the exposed skin. He had placed some vaporizing spray heated by a spirit lamp close to her head, and, as he worked, its fizzing nozzle filled the air with some clean and aromatic odor. Now and then he threw out an order. Bring me that electric lamp on the long cord, he said. I haven't got enough light. Don't look at what you're doing if you're squeamish. For if it makes you feel faint, I shan't be able to attend to you. I suppose that violent interest in what he was doing overcame my qualm that I might have had. For I looked, quite unflinching, over his shoulder as I moved the lamp about till it was in such a place that it threw its beam directly into a dark hole at the edge of which depended a flap of skin. Into this he put his forceps, and as he withdrew them, they grasped a piece of blood-stained bone. That's better, he said, and the room's warming up well, but there's no sign of pulse yet. Go on stroking, will you, till the thermometer of the wall there registers a hundred degrees. Then. When next on my journey from the coal cellar, I looked. Two more pieces of bone lay beside the one I had seen extracted, and presently, referring to the thermometer, I saw that between the oil stove and the roaring fire and the electric radiator, I had raised the room to the temperature he wanted. Soon peering fixedly at the seat of his operations, he felt for her pulse again. Not a sign of returning vitality, he said. And I've done all I can. There's nothing more possible that can be devised to restore her. As he spoke, the zeal of the unrivaled surgeon relaxed, and with a sign and a, and with a sigh and a shrug, he rose to his feet and mopped his face. And then suddenly, the fire and eagerness blazed there again. The gramophone, he said. The speech center is close to where I've been working, and it is quite uninjured. Good heavens! What a wonderful opportunity! She served me well living, and she shall serve me dead. And I can stimulate the motor nerve center, too, with the secondary battery. We may see a new wonder tonight. Some qualm of horror shook me. No, don't. It's terrible. She, She's just dead. I shall go if you do. But I've got exactly all the conditions I have been waiting for, said he, and I simply can't spare you. You must be witness. I must have a witness. Why, man, that is not a surgeon or a psychologist in the kingdom who would not have given an eye or an ear to be in the place you're in now. She's dead. I pledge you in honor that, and it's grand, to be dead if you can't help the living. Once again, in a far fiercer struggle, horror, and the instant curiosity strove together in me. Be quick, then, said I. Ha! <laughs> That's right, exclaimed Horton. Help me to lift her on the table by the gramophone, the cushion too. I can get that at the place more easily with her head a little raised. He turned on the battery and with the movable light close beside him, brilliantly illuminating 
what he sought. He inserted the needle of the gramophone into the jagged aperture in her skull. For a few minutes, as he groped and explored there, there was silence, and then, quite suddenly, Mrs. Gabriel's voice, clear and unmistakable of the normal loudness of human speech, issued from the trumpet. Yes, I always said that I'd be even with him, came the articulated syllables. He used to knock me about, he did, when he came home drunk, and often I was black and blue with bruises, but I'll give him a redness for the black and blue. The record grew blurred. Instead of articular words, there came from its gobbling noise. By degrees, that cleared, and we were listening to some dreadful, supposed sort of laughter. Hideous to hear. Oh, and it went on. I've got into some sort of rut, said Horton. She must have laughed a lot to herself. For a long time, we got nothing more except the repetition of words we had already heard and the sound of that suppressed laughter. Then Horton drew towards him the second battery. I'll try a stimulation of motor center nerves, he said, and watch her face. He propped the gramophone needle in position and inserted into the fractured skull the two poles of the second battery. Moving them about, they were very careful, and as I watched her face, I saw with the freezing horror that her lips began to move. Her mouth's moving, I cried. She can't be dead. He peered into her face. Nonsense, he said. That's only the stimulus from the current. She's been dead half an hour. Oh, what's coming now? The lips lengthened into a smile. The lower jaw dropped. And from her mouth came the laughter we had heard just through the gramophone. And then the dead mouth spoke with a mumble of unintelligible words, a bubbling turret of incoherent syllables. I'll turn the left current on, he said. The head jerked and raised itself. The lips struggled for utterance, and suddenly she spoke swiftly and distinctly. Just when he got his razor out, she said, I came up behind him and put my hand over his face and bent his neck back over his chair with all of my strength, and I picked up his razor, and with one slit, that was the way to put him out. And I didn't lose my head, but I lathered his chin well and put the razor in his hands and left him there, and went downstairs and cooked his dinner for him. Then, an hour afterwards, as he didn't come down, up I went to see what kept him. It was a nasty cut in his neck that had kept him. Horton suddenly withdrew the two poles of the battery from her head, and even in the middle of the word, and even in the middle of her word, the mouth ceased working and lay rigid open. By God, he said. There's a tale for dead lips to tell, but we'll get more yet. Exactly what happened then, I never knew. It appeared to me that as if he had still leaned over the table with the two poles of battery in his hand, his foot slipped and he fell forward across. There came a sharp crack and a flash of blue dazzling light. And there he lay face down, with arms just stirred and quivering. With his fall, the two poles must have momentarily have come into contact with his hand, where, jerked away again, and I lifted him and laid him on the floor, with his lips as well as those of the dead woman had spoken for the last time. And that is the end of the story, And the Dead Spake, by E.F. Benson.
everyone, we're finally at our exit, 666. Grab your things, unbuckle that seatbelt, and remember, try to be nice to the locals. I really wouldn't want to be reading about you next. Have a good night.